This episode is dedicated to Alec Balding, Icy, and Tam for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. If you can spare a few dollars a month, consider supporting us on Patreon. Not only do you get access to bonus content, but you'll also be supporting this entire project. If everyone who follows us were to support us with even $1 a month, this project could actually sustain my living and make this the only thing I do. Many leftist passion projects like this one have disappeared because the creators eventually had to make a financial decision whether to continue or not. The pandemic has only accelerated this timetable. I'm not just talking about myself or Southpaw. There are plenty of others who could use your support. There's actually enough of us to all support one another. We just never thought about it. Sometimes we just need a reminder. I also recognize many of you are also in difficult financial situations. And Paul and I appreciate you following us and telling your friends about us. If that's the only aid you can give, that's more than enough. Find links to our Patreon and our store at salpapod.com. This is Sam. This is Zari. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, we have anarchist, scholar, writer, YouTuber, Zoe Baker, who might be better known to listeners as Anarchopack. Along with anarchism, Zoe also writes about feminism and Marxism. Hi, Zoe. Hi. Since we try to cater to baby leftists, let's first start with anarchism. What is it and when and how did it emerge as a formal political ideology? So this is a really complicated question and different historians of anarchism disagree a lot about it and rather than go into those debates i'm just going to outline what i personally think but it should be kept in mind that you know other people who know a lot about anarchism will disagree with me as with you know any complicated topic like this so on my view anarchism is a form of anti-state socialism which first emerged within the 19th century the idea that the state should be abolished or that humans should live without a state in a non-hierarchical society was not a new idea. It wasn't suddenly invented in 19th century Europe. It can be found around the world throughout human history. What made anarchism distinct was that it emerged in response to the Industrial Revolution, the rise of the modern nation state and capitalism, and the development of socialism as an ideology and a series of social movements. And you can make an analogy between anarchism specifically and socialism in general in that the idea of communal property can be found, again, throughout human history, but people don't start calling themselves socialists until the 19th century. Um, and so when I talk about anarchism, I'm just talking about people who called themselves anarchists and not people who advocated similar ideas independently of them in um, other parts of the world or in other historic uh, periods. So anarchism, so understood, advocates the abolition of capitalism and the state, 
in favour of a stateless, classless society in which individuals are free from all forms of domination and exploitation and have equal access to the means necessary to develop themselves. So, you know, free food, healthcare, um, access to the things where they can become the best version of themselves, which doesn't come to capitalism because people can't access things unless they can uh, afford them. In order to achieve this, anarchists think that the means of production and land should be owned in common and workplaces and communities should be self-managed within general assemblies in which everyone has a vote and an equal say in decisions that affect them. So anarchists are socialists, but they're anti-authoritarian socialists. They want a free society, which is also an egalitarian one, rather than wanting, say, an egalitarian society in which people uh, aren't free or a society um, in which people are free, but there's uh, inequalities between them. And for anarchists, you can't have freedom without equality in the other way around. They think they're both necessary for each other. Now, what distinguished anarchists from other kinds of socialists who also advocated a stateless class of society was the means they proposed to achieve it. So anarchism is really distinguished from other kinds of socialism in terms of its strategy and tactics that it proposes as a working class social movement. Anarchists rejected seizing state power by uh, elections or an armed uprising. Um, and they instead thought that socialism should be achieved through a social revolution, which means some kind of fundamental rapid transformation of society during which the working classes overthrew the state rather than trying to take it over expropriate the means of production and land from the capitalist class and landlords, and then establish federations of workers' assemblies and workers' militias in order to organize and defend the revolution. Now, the process by which anarchism emerges as a social movement with these characteristics and this strategy occurs during uh, debates within the First International which is an association of socialists and trade unions and working class groups, which was founded in 1864. Um, but anarchism doesn't really begin to emerge within it until 1868. Um, within the First International, there's a group of people who are called the Federalist Wing. Uh, and not everyone within this group was an anarchist, uh, but uh, the majority of them were. And the Federalist Wing was in turn the majority of the membership of the First International. And what happens is that they split off from the first international and form a new organization, which they just called the international, but historians call the Sintimir International, because it was founded at a congress in 1872 in a place called Sintimir in Switzerland. And this occurred after two important historic anarchists were expelled from the first international at its 1872 Hague Congress. And these are Michael Bakunin and James Gilliam. And this split is often reduced to a kind of Marx versus Bakunin narrative. Um, but it was actually a much wider disagreement between different wings of the organization who disagreed about, for example, um, how the first international should be organized and whether or not social movements should participate in uh, parliamentary politics and in, in elections within the capitalist state. And so the main conflict was the fact that Marx, Engels and their supporters, the history is really complex, this is kind of a simplified version, but they 
that basically try to convert the general council of the first international, which was meant to be this administrative body that organized when the next Congress is going to be and things like that. Um, and instead they reorganized it. So it was more centralized and they imposed decisions and policies on the organizations, previously autonomous sections. And this is why the federalist wing were called federalists because they were in favor of autonomous sections within a federated structure rather than a centralized one. And this disagreement of how the first international was organized and whether or not the statutes of the first international should include the idea that we should achieve the conquest of state power uh, results in this split. And then within this group of people split off, a section of it begin to call themselves anarchists. And this is how anarchism emerges. But they actually use lots of different terms, which if you're not familiar with, you, you won't know who they're like referring to. So they'll call themselves revolutionary socialists, collectivists, federalists, autonomists, and anarchists. And anarchism is one of the labels that begins to stick with this social movement, which emerges within the first international. They weren't the first people to call themselves anarchists. Uh, there's a French uh, philosopher and socialist called Proudhon who calls himself an anarchist uh, in, I believe, 1840, uh, in a book called What is Property? Uh, and this social movement that emerges were familiar with this, and this is one of the places where they got the label from, although there were important differences between them and Proudhon. And then over time, this term becomes more and more ubiquitous until you reach the 1880s, and that's when you really have a fully developed social movement which calls itself anarchism. Now I'm just going to go briefly into where that social movement emerges and how it spreads around the world because it becomes a global movement. So it first emerges within Europe, uh, especially Spain, Italy and Switzerland, but it very, very quickly spreads to North America, South America, Asia, Oceania and Africa through uh, transnational networks and migration flows. Anarchism was disproportionately a movement of immigrants. Just to clarify for people who don't know, what is Oceania? Australia and um, Polynesia. So according to the historian Benedict Anderson, uh, he says that international anarchism was the main vehicle of global opposition to industrial capitalism, autocracy, and uh, latifundism, by which he means essentially like feudal uh, property relations, and imperialism uh, during the late 19th century. And at its height in the early 20th century, it mobilized several million workers around the world, mainly in trade unions. And it's received a global resurgence from the 1990s onwards, although it did, it did exist during the middle of the 20th century. It just wasn't as big as it was before. Last thing to talk about is how quickly it spread internationally. So in as early as 1872, there are already sections of the international in Argentina and Uruguay. Uh, in South America, which have a significant anarchist presence. And in the Egyptian city of Alexandria in 1876, and the final uh, 1877 Congress of the Sintimi International was attended by delegates representing anarchist groups in Argentina, Mexico, Uruguay, and Alexandria. So given this, it's a mistake to think that anarchism is this essentially European ideology and that it's fully developed within Europe, and then that's transmitted to the rest of the world, and they then just repeat this European doctrine. Instead, it actually spreads out of Europe 
during the very beginning of its emergence, before even the term anarchism has become ubiquitous within this movement, and then is co-created, refined, and pushed in new directions by anarchists on multiple continents, who actually in contact with one another through the anarchist press and uh, informal social networks, and also formal international organizations. And one of the interesting things that occurs is that when people from outside of Europe learn about and adopt anarchism, often through traveling to Europe or coming into contact with people who, who have, uh, such as students, for example, they would say, go to France, learn about anarchism, and then go back to where they were from and bring anarchist texts with them. Um, but when this occurred, they would actually combine the ideas they were getting from, say, Kropotkin uh, or Bakunin or Manifesto, who are European uh, authors, with their own pre-existing philosophies and anti-authoritarian traditions within their own culture. And this then modifies what their anarchism is and makes it actually different from, say, the anarchism that occurs in Italy or Spain. Um, so to give one example, the Chinese anarchist Ian Zen, who's not very well known, but should be, she uses lots of concepts in Chinese philosophy to argue for the abolition of gender. and Due to her background in Chinese philosophy and things like Confucianism, she actually thinks about gender and women's emancipation in a way that's different to how uh, other anarchist women uh, or, or men did within Europe or within the United States. Um, and that's something that I think is really uh, interesting to uh, think about. Just to clarify some things that you mentioned, then, it seems like anarchism as a political ideology emerged later, but there was a general attitude that you could call anarchism that predates the formal political ideology. So there, there are different examples of people advocating, for example, the abolition of the state and um, communal property much, much earlier. Uh, so there's a group in uh, England called the Levelers who are radical Christians. And they use a radical interpretation of the Bible to advocate very similar conclusions to what anarchists would later argue in the 19th century. Um, and there are also some academics who point to certain radical branches of um, Taoism, uh, where, again, you have similar uh, anti-hierarchical politics being advocated, but within a different framework and in, in, in different language much, much uh, earlier. Um, and people would also point to uh, different indigenous societies which lived without a state and reproduced non-hierarchical um, politics. And in some of these cases, these indigenous societies were with other indigenous societies that were authoritarian, uh, and they would they had notions of um, they had arguments for why they wanted to live in the way they did. Uh, and as it were, their own political philosophies and, and traditions, which I wouldn't label uh, as anarchists just because they didn't call themselves that and that term uh, wasn't they weren't familiar with. But I would want to point out the commonalities between what they said and did or how their societies reproduced themselves to ensure they were consistently uh, non-authoritarian and, and non-hierarchical uh, with what, what anarchists later did. And there's then a whole period, even in the 19th century, where you have people who 
again, a, a beginning to advocate some ideas, but are yet to call themselves anarchists. Uh, and similarly, in, in, in the United States and America, there are different people who later get called anarchists once they're discovered, but again, are, are, are you know, advocating similar ideas. That's why we try to distinguish carefully between the ideas and the movement which calls itself anarchists. Yes. Uh, and they're two separate things. Yeah. They're both important. I just wanted to clarify that also for listeners, because a lot of our listeners are from the US, and uh, that becomes a point of confusion in pop culture also. And I think that pop culture bleeds into even political ideas, but there's a lot of people who just feel like, because I have this type of attitude, I must overlap one for one with this political ideology and political movement. Maybe that is something they want to aim for, but it's not necessarily the same. So the anarchist uh, manifesto called um, general anti-authoritarianism the anarchist spirit, uh, and he thought that the anarchist spirit, by which he meant a desire for human emancipation, a rejection of authoritarian power relations, um, he thought people could have that anarchist spirit without being anarchists, and the existence of that anarchist spirit was a precondition for the emergence of anarchism as a social movement. And then another term that you used. General Assembly, which I think Americans might not be as familiar with. So what is a General Assembly? So General Assembly isn't a term that historic anarchists use. They actually use loads of different terms. So they'll refer to a workers' council. They'll refer to a producers and a consumers' association. They'll refer to a commune. Um, but what uh, they mean by these terms, and I use the term general assembly, so it will be kind of clearer to a modern audience. But what it means is you have a bunch of people who get together, say 20 people, and they make decisions as a group. And there isn't one person or a few people who tell everyone else what to do. Instead, they make decisions as a group and decide on things in a you know, egalitarian uh, way through what some people would call direct democracy, but other people wouldn't want to label it as that. But essentially, everyone has a vote, we formulate a proposal, and everyone then votes on it. And different anarchist groups disagreed about how exactly to make those decisions. So some anarchist groups use the system of majority vote. So if if 75% vote yes, then we do it as a group. And it's expected that the minority who disagree will go along with that decision. Um, and if they don't like it, they cannot participate or they can leave the organization or they can try to persuade people. They're not kind of forced into um, doing things that they otherwise wouldn't want to do. Uh, other anarchist groups aimed for what they called um, unanimous uh, decisions, which is where everyone um, agrees and, that, and we won't do things unless everyone in the group agrees. And it was often the case that anarchists proposed different kinds of voting systems within their general assemblies, uh, depending on the scale that they were operating at. So if it's, say, just five people um, in a small group, which they call affinity groups, which is more like it's kind of like a bunch of people who have a shared interest or affinity. Um, they were usually groups of close friends. Um, they would aim for unanimous decisions, which makes sense when you have, say, four people who are just hanging out and say, trying to do a newspaper together. or. Um, other such activities, um, but for large trade unions with say 800,000 members, uh, they advocated systems of majority vote because they didn't think it was 
um, possible to reach under uh, unanimous decisions with that many people, and the actions still had to be taken. So the delegates who are elected to um, represent the local trade union at a congress of all the, the trade unions in the country, uh, they would um, pass resolutions based on what the majority of delegates voted for. Does this go back to the idea of federation then? Because you said it's not necessarily a direct democracy. So a federation is an association of different autonomous groups. So rather than there being a, a center of the organization, which imposes decisions on all the subgroups, instead it's a network where you have different nodes who relate to each other but those nodes are independent. And the reason why anarchists advocate this is because they didn't want a system where um, a small group of people could take over the organization and push it in a direction that the members didn't want. And they thought the people who were in the best position to make decisions about uh, a local situation were people at that local level. So therefore, they wanted a system where you have the lowest level of the federation, which is uh, a, a group in a given area, those groups within a particular region form a network, which is called a regional federation, which is all the groups within that area. And they then elect delegates who don't have decision-making power. They just do what um, they're told to do by the people who elected them. And if, and if they do something that the people in the group who elected them don't like, then they get recalled and, and replaced with someone else. Uh, and they're instructed on on what to do and vote on at, at, at the congresses of uh, all the delegates from all the different uh, groups in a region. And then you have multiple different regional federations in, for example, Spain. And all those different regional federations then come together to form the uh, national federation. Um, and different federations had different like scales. So some would have they would break it down into more distinct federations. There's like a local federation, a regional federation, a cantonal federation, then the national federation. Uh, other groups, if they weren't as large, would have less levels just because it wasn't necessary. Um, uh, but the, at the congresses of the um, national federation, they're attended by all uh, delegates representing every single autonomous section. And if that Congress makes a decision, which one autonomous section feels really strongly about, that autonomous section is free to disassociate and go like, we don't want to be with this federation. We want to go form our own one um, due to this fundamental disagreement because anarchists don't want a situation where you have the tyranny of the majority because majorities so in America, for example, you have situations where the majority of people are racist or they're sexist, and you don't want a situation where a majority with not very good views can use the organization to impose those views um, on others um, and thereby um, make them unfree. Um, and also because given the history of the First International, anarchists were very weary of it repeating and there being another situation where you have a bunch of people trying to impose strategies and policies um, undemocratically onto the rest of the organization, who then has to go along with it because of how the organization is structured. 
and they really, really didn't want a repeat of that. And it actually led some anarchists to be, they went too far, I think, in the other direction, even though I understand why they did, because they were uh, really uh, worried about it happening again. So when just regular people think about direct democracy, where everybody just gets a say in this one giant group, there's this other side of it that they don't consider, which is that that might seem like direct democracy, but then it also means like you just have one node to use your term, right? That might centralize power to decide what to do with that vote. And you could have a tyranny of the majority. So when you break it up, it creates kind of a, a redundancy system where you don't have those problems. Am I getting that right? Yeah. And it's also to ensure local level decision making. So it's not, it's not possible for, say, every anarchist in Spain to get in a room and make a decision together because there are too many of them. It likewise won't make sense for, say, someone from another part of Spain to be telling anarchists from another part of Spain whether or not they should go on strike at their workplace. That's a decision for the people within that workplace to make and not from people in a different situation to make. So it's also about people having control over the things that they both know about and also that it's appropriate for them to have control over. A majority of people might live in this one country and they get to decide what happens in every country, right? Yeah, and, and anarchists also worry of like, so for example, let's say you have within a trade union, one trade union in one region that's absolutely massive compared to the other, all the other industries. They would then have more influence than anyone else in the entire organization which then can mean that other people's voices aren't being heard and aren't having the kind of influence that they should have. And so they wanted to try and uh, avoid that by adopting this federal structure. Another thing that you mentioned was that anarchists are anti-armed revolution. Well, they're, they're in favor of armed revolution. Um, they're against using violence to seize state power, but they are in favor of using violence to defend um, themselves from the state when it attacks them. Uh, so if we occupy factories to expropriate them, the army and the police are sent in. Anarchists absolutely taking up uh, arms to defend yourselves from the state, to violently overthrow uh, the state. Um, anarchists consistently advocated violent revolution, and that was one of the things that distinguished them from other social movements. What they rejected was using that violence to seize existing state power. Um, they were only they wanted to use violence to overthrow the state and replace it with anarchist federations. A note to our loyal listeners: If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes transcripts of fight studies and access to our private chat group on discord but more importantly you will help us supplement the cost of the show the incredible time and energy sam and i put into making the show and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle southpaw with our day jobs but also expand southpaw into other areas show your southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpaw pod why was 1868 to 1939 such an important period in anarchist history? So the reason why this is an important time period in anarchist history is that it's when anarchism as a social movement arises. 
it's when the main subtypes of anarchism get invented. So there are different kinds of anarchism, which are mainly distinguished from each other based on the kinds of strategies they advocate and how they organize. And these develop during this period and still exist today. So often there'll be debates happening in the contemporary anarchist movement that are really just a repeat of debates that actually happened in the 19th century. Like we're still having these conversations. So to give one example, um, there was a big debate in the historic anarchist movement about whether or not you should even form uh, formal organizations. And some anarchists uh, just wanted informal networks of small affinity groups in order to avoid state repression and avoid centralization from occurring and bureaucracies developing. Um, and these inf uh, different affinity groups they thought should coordinate via um, newspapers, for example, which kind of functioned like their social media. Um, and other anarchists rejected this and wanted to form large-scale formal organizations like trade unions. And this is still a debate that the anarchist movement's uh, having. Um, and you can do this for loads of uh, other um, topics within anarchism. And I feel like it's when the main ideas of what anarchism is get established and that make it the social movement is that distinguishes it from other social movements. And it, it's, it's in a sense a kind of artificial construction because, for example, you can find anarchist um, manifestos from 1945 which advocating the exact same ideas as 1939. Um, the reason why people tend to kind of cut off books during this period is because in 1939 is when the Spanish Revolution, uh, the Spanish Civil War ends. Uh, uh, and so it's kind of a neat way to cut up time periods in an artificial um, manner um, when you're like writing a history book. Um, but it's not the case that, say, 1940 anarchism suddenly changes and it's this different thing. Like it, it continues to be the same social movement, uh, and the, and there are still you know people who were anarchists in say the 1920s who are still alive during the 1950s and still have the same um, politics. But it's when historians write histories uh, of anarchism, this just tends to be one of the the way in which they create a periodization of the movement which some people reject as being kind of like Spanish-centric. Like, why should the cutting-off point be 1939 when the Spanish Revolution loses? Why shouldn't it be based on, say, um, defeats within the Argentinian anarchist movement, uh, which continues to have its own um, independent existence? You can do the same for, like, other countries. So it's kind of both a convenient way of categorizing anarchist history, but also could be viewed in some ways as like misleading uh, due to the way in which it divides up time based on especially the history of Spanish anarchism. There are more books on Spanish anarchism in English than on any other anarchist social movement. And so this kind of results in a bias in anarchist history, at least in the English speaking world. Because I have heard the terms first wave, second wave, third wave anarchism. To your point, then, these might be just more constructed by historians to break up time. Yeah. But the debates have always been the same. They've been having the same discussions. The, the, there are new discussions that happen, right? So, you know, say, like, anarchism was massively influenced by the rise of um, gay rights movements uh, and kind of uh, and, and new left feminism. 
And that resulted in new debates and discussions being had within the anarchist movement, say in the uh, 21st century, then in the 19th. So it's not the case that we're having literally the same debate. It's just a lot of debates are the same. And the core of what anarchism is hasn't really changed since the movement first arose in the 19th century. But there's more kind of people developing new ideas and strategies in response to the ongoing struggle and the lessons of it, which result in anarchism changing or them uh, new information being available. Uh, so, for example, how anarchists write about different um, indigenous societies is different in the 21st century based on modern anthropology and the perspectives of modern indigenous anarchists than, say, what Kropotkin or uh, Elise Reclus are writing in the 19th century based on the uh, evidence and texts that are available to them, which often, you know, texts written by like really colonial and like racist people. Um, so there is, there are definite massive changes in anarchism, while the core of it remaining the same, right? That it is a form of anti-state socialism, that it rejects participating in the state, that it advocates the abolition of classes. These things uh, remain. Um, and similarly, the idea, there's the term that's often used called new anarchism to refer to the kind of anarchism that emerges, say, from the 90s onwards within the global justice movement, um, or sometimes called the ultra-globalization movement. And again, a lot of the ideas within the new anarchism aren't actually new. They're repeating stuff that's already been said by people in the 19th century. Sometimes without them even being aware of the fact that they are repeating ideas, um, they just arrived at the same conclusions independently. Many people, probably including many anarchists, seem to have the wrong idea about the term communism. Can you tell us about the origins of the term and what it means? So this is something you could kind of write a whole book on. <laughs> so I'm going to try <laughs> to be uh, succinct, but I'm obviously not going to be able to cover everything. So. What communism means changes over time. The word communist is invented in 1840 by French working class secret societies. And they're secret in order to avoid state repression, which was really brutal at the time. It was illegal to form uh, trade unions when they were operating. Um, and the term communism comes to be used by a variety of different radicals, especially in France, but it spreads elsewhere to Germany and the United States and UK, to refer to a society based on communal ownership. Um, and in this sense, there isn't really yet a big distinction between this word socialism, uh, which is first appears um, within a, a, an Owenite, uh, which is a follower of a guy called Robert Owen, a newspaper in England around the same time. Um, but at, that, at this point, socialist and communist kind of mean the same thing, which is advocating some kind of fundamental social change to achieve communal ownership. Uh, and the term communism is associated with uh, a French person who's not really well known anymore called Cabet. He wrote a influential utopian novel called The Voyage to Icaria in 1840. And Marx and Engels read these early communists. And they hang out with communist workers in secret societies. And they then decide to reject um, republicanism and embrace communism. And when they do that, they develop their own notion of what communism is, which is different from the previous 
people who are calling themselves communists. So Marx and Engels come to define communism as a stateless, classless, moneyless society based on the common ownership of the means of production and land, distribution according to need, democratic planning of the economy through some kind of system of general assemblies, and the end to a rigid division of labor such that people are going to be doing a combination of different kinds of labor rather than, for example, spending your whole life being a cleaner or doing a really specific thing within the manufacture of a car. Um, they wanted people to develop themselves in a multifaceted manner and therefore should engage in lots of different kinds of labor in order to develop themselves in lots of different directions. Um, importantly for Marx, communism is a free society. So he described communism in Capital Volume 1 as an association of free men. And he thought that a communist society was one in which the full and free development of every individual forms the ruling principle. So Marx was in favor of the freedom of the individual and communism was a society that would guarantee the freedom of individuals within a free association. And this is really important to point out because growing up in our society, we're taught that communism means a totalitarian state where nobody's free. Even if you accept that as a description of the USSR or Maoist China, those societies aren't in fact communist by Marx's definition because they weren't free stateless societies in which workers themselves own and administer uh, the means of production and the economy. And even the rulers of these countries like the USSR never claimed that they were communist society. They consistently viewed themselves as a socialist society or a workers state run by the communist party, which is meant to be building towards communism, but isn't actually communist itself. So even if you think these societies were really terrible, which I personally do, but of course, you know, other leftists disagree with me. But even if you think these societies are terrible, that doesn't show that communism doesn't work. It at best shows that a particular way of reaching communism doesn't work. And to, to go back to the history of the term communism, a lot of people only know about communism as an idea, as it's articulated by Marx and Engels. What people tend not to be aware of is that Marx and Engels weren't actually widely read or super famous until Marxist parties rise and spread their ideas from late 1870s to 1880s onwards. And this varies from country uh, to country. And even within Marxist parties, lots of workers didn't actually read Marx and Engels themselves. They read other people summarize their ideas. And if they did read them, it was often very short text like the Communist Manifesto rather than Capital Volume 1, which is a really difficult, dense text. Um, and when the Communist Manifesto came out in 1848, it was read by a really small number of people. And lots of the texts where Marx and Engels actually defined their notion of communism weren't publicly available at the time. They were in unpublished private manuscripts, such as Marx's uh, 1844 economic and philosophic um, manuscripts. And because of this, there's actually a whole period where the term communism has a wider history that's not at all connected with how Marx and Engels use the term. So, for example, in the first international, 
there are French delegates who often refer to communism and critique it. And a modern person could look at this and assume that they must be referring to the ideas of Marx and Engels, uh, but they weren't because they weren't familiar with the ideas of Marx and Engels. Um, similarly, uh, in Italy, um, people, uh, the first people called themselves socialists in Italy were anarchists, and the anarchists in Italy weren't themselves really familiar um, with Marx and Engels' uh, actual writings, even though they knew of them as people. Um, instead, what these French delegates are referring to when they talk about communism is the French writer Cabet that I mentioned previously, uh, and the Ecorians, which was a movement he had inspired that set up small communities based on common ownership. Um, and they attempted to implement the society that Cabet had described in his novel. And they often kind of went wrong in different ways or resulted in different kinds of interpersonal authoritarianism. And so when they're critiquing, say, communism as authoritarian or as something they reject, they're thinking of these social movements that people in the French socialist movement are familiar with. Um, and as a result of this, the term communism historically doesn't actually necessarily entail a stateless society, even though that's what it means in Marx and Engels. So the Italian anarchist um, Carlo Caffero, who I previously mentioned, He's one of the inventors of anarchist communism. And in the primary sources where he talks about this, he defines communism in terms of common ownership plus distribution according to need. He doesn't include it being stateless within the definition. And he then argues that communism so understood has to be combined with what he calls anarchy. Uh, and by anarchy, he doesn't mean disorder or chaos. He means the absence of hierarchy and a state. He means a free society. So he thinks that anarchist communism is the fusion of uh, freedom, anarchy, and communism, equality. Um, and this won't make sense to a modern Marxist. They will read it and not understand why does he think you have to combine communism with anarchism in order for it to be free and stateless, because that's what it means in Marx and Engels. Well, what it shows is that at the time when Cabrera is writing in the late 1870s, early 1890s, the term communism has a much broader meaning. Now, what subsequently happens is that when Marxist parties arise, they usually don't call themselves communist parties, even though this was the term that Marx uh, and Engels used to describe themselves. They instead usually call themselves social democratic or uh, socialist parties. Um, they tend not to call themselves communists. They do sometimes use the word communist, especially when referring back to the writings of Marx and Engels. But more often, they'll actually just use the term socialism uh, or cooperative commonwealth uh, to refer to the future society, which Marx calls communism. The social movement, which consistently calls itself communist, including within the names of its organizations, is in fact anarchism, where anarchist communism is the majority the majority position within the movement. And then what happens is that there's a split within the social democratic movement in response to World War I and a variety of other things, in which a section of it split off and they rebrand themselves as communists. And this includes people like Lenin. They then form communist parties, which are in opposition to the socialist and social democratic parties that they were formerly uh, members of or 
similar to. Um, and then, and then what happens is the term communism comes to be identified with these communist parties. And people then start talking about communism and, and anarchism as if they're distinct, because by communism, they mean these communist parties and not uh, the anarchists. When before, the people who'd mainly called themselves communists were the anarchists, and the anarchists continued to call themselves anarchist communists um, afterward. Going along with that, is the end goal for all the different left tendencies then this type of communism, this stateless, classless, moneyless society, or is it only unique to a couple? So it's not the case that all left-wing people have this goal. Um, so historically, there are people who called, called themselves mutualists, who advocated a form of market socialism, and they rejected a uh, planned um, economy. And this was a movement in the mid-19th century but it continued to be a thing in the United States, uh, especially in parallel to the communist anarchists. And these mutualists in America often called themselves individualist anarchists, and they're a distinct uh, social movement to the communist anarchists, although there is some overlap between those social movements. Like there were some people who began in the individualist movement and then moved over to the communist one. It's also the case that within what's sometimes called social anarchism, uh, which is the anarchists who weren't in favour of what's called individualist anarchism. Um, they were initially in favour of what was called collectivism. Now, collectivism is when you have uh, social ownership of the means of production and land, plus distribution according to labour performed, usually via a system of labour vouchers. So the idea is, is I work four hours, I receive 20 labour vouchers, I then go to the communal store and I spend my labor vouchers on various goods. Uh, and they aren't like money because you can't, for example, like the, the labor vouchers are tied to you as a person. You can't go trade them with someone else and accumulate like a ridiculous number of labor vouchers and then buy everything and become a capitalist. Um, they're just a way of allocating uh, scarce resources. Um, and this is what Bakunin uh, and the initial anarchist movement was in favor of. However, within Italy, uh, Italian anarchists, such as Carlo Caffero, but also Malatesta, um, come to develop what they call anarchist communism, which is social ownership of the means of production land, plus distribution according to need. And the way this is often phrased is that we don't just have to abolish wage labor, we have to abolish the wage system itself and therefore abolish anything that's anywhere, anything like money. Um, and so they would critique the collectivists for um, rewarding people based on how much uh, work they do, um, rather than just giving people uh, what they need and, and uh, not having that kind of a system. But what's very interesting is that in the critique of the Goffre program, uh, which is a letter Marx writes critiquing the program of a early a social democratic um, party. He writes this critique in the minute. He distinguishes between what he calls lower phase communism and higher phase communism. A lower phase communism is communism um, just after the abolition of capitalism when we're still in this period of transition. We haven't fully established the proper communist society. And he thinks within lower phase communism, you'll have labor vouchers and you, you won't yet have full distribution according to need. 
Um, but within anarchism, what Marx calls lower phase communism is called collectivism. And there are, in fact, some collectivists who end up advocating Marx's position, but in different language, where they say, we'll have collectivism first, immediately after the revolution, and have labor vouchers. And then once things are stable, we'll transition to uh, a full communist society. Um, other um, communists rejected this and were like, in the um, phase during the abolition and after the, just after the abolition of capitalism, we won't have money and instead have like a rationing system. So you get allocated, say, like 50 points just because you exist rather than based on the amount of work you do. And there was a really heated debate within the anarchist movement between the collectivists and the communists about the future society that was often entangled with kind of wider debates within the movement, but it was still one of the main things they, they discussed. And in response to this in Spain, um, a group of anarchists create what they called anarchism without adjectives, which means that rather than us kind of wasting all our time arguing with each other and we should be uniting and fighting the ruling class, we'll be um, agnostic about what the future society is going to be like. We don't know if collectivism or communism is best, and we're just going to wait and see. And there'll be, there'll be loads of different experiments and different ways of living during the revolution and afterwards. And we'll figure out through that experimentation um, what uh, is best. Uh, and similar positions are arrived by Italian anarchists like Manatesto, although they don't use the term anarchist for adjectives, uh, where they, even though they themselves are a communist, they don't make communism a feature of uh, the anarchist program they write for an organization they're involved in because they want to be able to unite as many anarchists as possible, including anarchists who aren't communists, even though, weirdly, they are advocates of lower-phase communism in, in Marx's language. There's also kind of earlier kinds of early socialism, where they don't actually even advocate the abolition of a state, so they don't advocate a stateless society. They just want a society based on a, a massive bureaucratic state managing the economy and the general interests, but they, they don't actually advocate a stateless society. Um, although that's a tendency that becomes kind of smaller as the history of socialism develops and anarchism and Marxism become uh, a thing and become very popular. So I think for lay people, when they hear stateless, classless, moneyless, they might think, to your point, what you just mentioned, stateless might be like one of the most important things to debate. But what you just showed, how even the idea of money itself can lend itself to other problematic ideas and features of how society is run. So you could have debates about how we should treat money or vouchers and so forth. Yeah, the, the, the main debate within the anarchist movement about the future society became how should goods be distributed after the revolution? And this is often phrased in terms of whether or not the products of labor should be communally owned. So the idea was that if we have individual ownership of the products of labor, then that means that you as an individual get rewarded for the labor you've done. Like, so you get these labor vouchers, while the communists thought that the products of labor should be communally owned because they're the products of collective labor. And they didn't think it was possible to like pinpoint how much labor you did and how it contributed towards the overall production process because so many people are involved in it. And you know, even within a factory, say, where you're, you're producing one bit and another worker's producing another bit, or even if you can work out exactly you know, how much uh, labor you're each doing, 
what about all the external things that that factory production relies on? So all the infrastructure uh, that other workers are doing that's enabling the workers in the factory to produce the thing that they are producing. And so they didn't think you'd actually ever be able to kind of work out what an individual contributed towards uh, the wider productive process because it's this vast social uh, network. Uh, and therefore, we shouldn't think in terms of my individual contribution towards the thing, but more the fact that I exist in society and so I should have free access to the collectively produced products of labor in order to become the best version of myself. I could see the question of money being the least popular topic for just regular people who are not in academia or just like consider themselves part of the left because it might be for them the most boring thing to think about. Well, the part of why it was such a big topic for the movement was because they thought a revolution was imminent. So they thought, you know, this is something we need to figure out now so that when the revolution happens, we know what we're going to do to make sure everyone's getting food and, and, and all the essentials they need. So it was a really practical question for them, given that they thought that they were on the verge of, you know, literally overthrowing capitalism as an economic system. Um, like Kropotkin would say, the revolution is going to happen in the next uh, you know, five to 10 years. And he wasn't the only one. They generally thought it was imminent in, in, at the end of the 19th century. And it turns out that uh, revolutions did happen. It's just that they tended to be defeated, um, such as in Italy or in Spain um, or in Germany, uh, all go in a direction that anarchists didn't like, which they would view as the defeat of the revolution by other means, such as in Russia. Um, but it, was, it wasn't like this kind of abstract ac academic debate for them. It was workers arguing with each other about the kind of society they want to create as a social movement, which they think they actually will be creating within their lifetime. That makes sense, because for us, it doesn't feel imminent. Well, yeah, well, you know, we're, we, I'm reading people who wrote like 150 years ago, right? And uh, capitalism still exists. <laughs> Why did they think that the revolution was coming so soon? What was the general sentiment of the time? What was happening to make them feel this way? So these are people who have, who had relatives who had lived through like the French Revolution or had known people who lived through the French Revolution. Um, so the, this huge social transformation had occurred within very, for them, recent uh, time period. And then on top of that, you have uh, in 1848, there are a series of revolutions that occur throughout Europe that are variously crushed, attempting to achieve um, essentially like kind of representative democracy. And this is really when socialism begins to emerge as, as a, um, a working class like militant social movement. Um, and it's one of the key things that pushes a lot of radicals to like embrace uh, socialism and, and communism. Uh, and then after 1848, there's the Paris Commune in 1871. And there are actually several different uprisings that occur in France at the same time, which are a lot shorter, but um, also get crushed by the power of the state. Um, there's um, insurrections that happen in Italy and Spain. Uh, there are huge numbers of strikes occurring, massive increase in trade unionism, uh, the rise of the First International. Um, there's this sense that we are the, the, the spirit of revolt is escalating, is how they would talk about it. They, they thought that 
we are in the early phase of the French Revolution, but for now. And so they and so they would read about the history of the French Revolution and compare it to their current situation and think like, okay, this is where they were, and this is where um, we are, and we're kind of on the same trajectory as them. That we just need to keep pushing forward, and we will end up like achieving a, a revolution. And we're just in the the kind of um, the evolutionary phase that's going to build up to culminate in this revolution. And so I can kind of really see why they thought it was imminent. And it's only with the kind of benefit of hindsight that you can realize that they were mistaken. Although in a sense, they weren't mistaken because, like I said, loads of revolutions did happen. It's just that they were militarily crushed. And they underestimated the extent to which people would identify with the nation state and side with it, such as occurred through fascism in uh, Italy and Germany and Spain, which all emerged as, as ways of crushing uh, like socialist uh, revolutions and the possibility of, of, of socialist revolution. And there's a tendency in a lot of kind of early like socialist texts where they, they think that people, work, workers are extremely oppressed and they, once they've realized that they're oppressed, they're going to rise up and we're going to like achieve the revolution. And then they later realize that that's like not going to happen. <laughs> uh, they won't, that, that, the workers won't just suddenly like emancipate themselves we have to uh, go by a kind of much slower route to build up a mass movement that can then launch a revolution but in the in the late 19th century a lot of anarchists thought that due to how unbelievably horrific capitalism was and how many recent revolts and uprisings and strikes there had been it wouldn't take much to essentially be the spark that lit like the fire of global revolution um, when they were trying to be that spark now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pulse. Hitting with the left. South Pulse. Sam. Paul. South Pulse. South Pulse.